Some 13,000 auto workers are now on day four of a strike as talks with the big three automakers failed to reach an agreement. It's Monday, September 18th. This is WBMAR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, five Americans imprisoned in Iran are expected to be released today as part of a high-stakes deal between the two nations. Also this hour, climate activists descend on New York City, demanding that leaders end the use of fossil fuels and take action against climate change. And government officials in Libya are facing harsh criticism for their response to last week's catastrophic floods. It's not just that they are inadequate, incompetent and corrupt, they're careless and our lives don't matter to them. In sports, losses for both the Patriots and Red Sox, around 70 today with rain likely. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. World leaders are gathering in New York this week for the U.N. General Assembly's annual meeting. It opens tomorrow, and President Biden will address the diplomats. So will Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Linda Fasulo has more on the meeting. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres says the high-level meeting is occurring as the world faces immense challenges, from geopolitical divisions and accelerating climate change to escalating conflicts and growing inequalities. In addition to allowing leaders to address the global forum in speeches, there will be many opportunities for them to meet offstage to discuss world issues. Seven summits are also scheduled, with the first one focusing on progress in attaining the UN's 17 Sustainable Development Goals. These include ending poverty and hunger and improving social conditions and the state of the environment by 2030. For NPR News, I'm Linda Fasulo in New York. The Chinese spy balloon that floated across the country in February and was then shot down did not collect any intelligence. That's according to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, who spoke to CBS. As NPR's John Ruwich reports, Milley says a leading theory is that the balloon was blown off course. The balloon caused uproar after it was discovered soaring above Montana. The Biden administration let it float across the country before bringing it down with a missile shot from an F-22 off the East Coast. Speaking in an interview on CBS News Sunday morning, Milley said the balloon probably didn't gather or transmit any sensitive information. The intelligence community, their assessment, and it's a high-confidence assessment, uh, that there was no intelligence collection by that balloon. Why it was in the air over America remains unclear, but he said a leading theory is that it got blown off track by winds where it was floating 60,000 feet in the air. Beijing has accused the U.S. of overreacting to what it says was a weather research balloon. John Ruich, NPR News, Shanghai. California authorities are searching for the person who shot and killed a Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputy on Saturday. 30-year-old Ryan Klinkenbrumer was shot in the back of the head while he was in his patrol car in an intersection. L.A. County Sheriff Robert Luna is asking the public for help. And we need you now more than ever. Uh, We come out and help everybody 24-7, and we need you now to help us. We need you to help us capture the coward that committed this murder. It's not known if Klinkenbrumer was the target of the shooting or what the motive was. Officials in Pennsylvania are again looking for escaped prisoners. Nine male juveniles got out of a youth facility last night after a large fight broke out. Four of them have now been recaptured. The escape comes after this month's capture of a convicted Pennsylvania killer. Danilo Cavalcante had eluded Pennsylvania searchers for almost two weeks before he was apprehended. 
This is NPR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Part of the MBTA Green Line extension is closed for the next three weeks starting today. That's so crews can make repairs to Squires Bridge in Somerville. The shutdown will impact trains between Leachmere and Union stations. Shuttle service will not replace the suspended service. The planned closure is scheduled through October 12th. Starting today, traffic on the Bourne Bridge will be restricted for the next two months. That'll allow crews to make repairs to the aging structure. WBUR's Amy Sokolow has more on the project. Two lanes will be reduced to one in each direction. Crews will repair concrete and pavement, deteriorated steel supports, and bridge joints on the nearly 90-year-old Bourne. The Army Corps of Engineers oversees the bridge. It's telling drivers to expect delays through late November, especially in the morning and afternoon. The other Cape Cod bridge, the Sagamore, underwent similar maintenance work in the spring. The state is working to come up with $4.5 billion in state and federal funding that will be needed to replace both bridges. Governor Healy wants to start with the Sagamore. That project would start in 2028 and likely be completed in 2036. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. Police are investigating a shooting yesterday in Dorchester that left five people injured. That includes two juvenile victims. Officials say the gunfire broke out at a large outdoor gathering around 8.30 last night. All five people were taken to local hospitals. Police say one of the young victims suffered life-threatening injuries. Massachusetts is the healthiest state in America for a third year in a row. That's according to new data compiled compiled by Boston University researchers. The Share Care Community Wellbeing Index uses data on financial well-being, physical health, and housing to decide its rankings. The state ranked well because of health care access, housing, and transportation. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru. Introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. The Patriots fell to the Miami Dolphins last night at Gillette Stadium, the 24-17 loss puts the Pats at an 0-2 start to their season. The Red Sox also had a tough weekend. The team was swept on the road by the Blue Jays in Toronto. They're traveling to Texas tonight to face off against the Rangers. Showers and patchy fog today with up to two inches of rain possible. High temperatures will reach the upper 60s. Cloudy tonight with more rain possible. Temperatures fall to lows in the upper 50s. Tomorrow, sunny with highs in the low 70s. Right now, it's 65 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. This is the week when world leaders gather at the United Nations for the General Assembly. And this year, they're taking stock of a set of ambitious goals to fight poverty and hunger around the world, so-called sustainable development goals. Ukraine's president is also expected to attend the General Assembly as he tries to get more countries to push Russia to end its aggression. And Pierre's Michelle Kellerman takes a look at a very big agenda. 
U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres says the world is falling behind in its goals and facing massive challenges, climate change, conflict, and soaring inequalities. People are looking to their leaders for a way out of this mess. Yet, in the face of all this and more, geopolitical divisions are undermining our capacity to respond. Russia's war against Ukraine has upended world food markets and stymied work in the U.N. Security Council, where Russia holds a permanent seat and veto power. The council will be meeting on Ukraine on Wednesday, and Guterres is hoping to use his meetings this week to try to revive a deal that allowed Ukraine to export food via the Black Sea. He's not sounding very optimistic about that, though, nor are U.S. officials. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield says Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine struck at the heart of the U.N. charter. Right now, we are at an inflection point, and the actions we take over the next week and in the months ahead will be consequential. Humanitarian organizations are worried that the global divides make it hard to get anything done at the U.N. David Miliband is a former British foreign secretary who runs the International Rescue Committee, an aid group. Ukraine has united the West, but it has divided the West from the rest. And it's led to allegations that Ukraine is getting um, some kind of extra treatment or extra focus. He's just back from visiting Ukraine and says the conflict there has a direct impact on other countries. Russia has been striking grain depots and blocking Ukrainian exports, and many countries in Africa depend on Ukrainian grain. U.S. officials say they are committed to both helping Ukraine and the rest of the world. That's necessary, says Elizabeth Cousins, who runs a nonprofit that supports the U.N. called the U.N. Foundation. We have to deal with issues about of aggression and violation of the U.N. Charter and countries that are at war that need to be at peace. We have to deal with natural disasters. Look at, you know, the catastrophic toll that has been taken in Libya with these recent floods, the recent earthquake in Morocco. Um, and we have to be able to keep our sights on the goals that we set for ourselves. This is the halfway point for countries to meet those Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs. Cousins helped to negotiate the ambitious targets. They're incredibly important. They're the world's plan for a healthier, safer, and fairer planet for us all. And they are off track. While world leaders focus on these broad goals, there will also be meetings on the sidelines on some specific conflicts, from recent coups in Africa to the wars in Sudan and Yemen, as well as the plans for an international intervention for Haiti, a country currently overrun by gangs. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu will be in California today, meeting with tech leaders before heading to New York City for the United Nations General Assembly. Among those tech leaders is Elon Musk, whose social media platform X, or Twitter, has been flooded with anti-Semitic hate in recent weeks, some of it amplified by Musk in his own tweets. The target of many of those messages, it's the Anti-Defamation League, a group that describes its focus as fighting anti-Semitism and all forms of hate. Jonathan Greenblatt is CEO and National Director of the Anti-Defamation League. We have him here on the line. Jonathan, so what do you make of the Netanyahu-Musk meeting? Well, look, I'm aware that Prime Minister Netanyahu and Elon Musk are meeting in San Francisco today. Nothing about the meeting is particularly surprising, given Musk's range of business interests like Starlink and SpaceX and Israel's technology sector, which is one of the most innovative and dynamic in the world. 
But as you said in the opening, Israel and Jews frequently are targets of hateful, anti-Zionist and anti-Semitic invective on Twitter X. So what I would hope is that they may have a productive meeting about a range of issues, but that they will talk about concrete strategies to combat the rampant anti-Semitism and the grotesque anti-Zionism that dominates the platform. Now, we should stipulate that the Anti-Defamation League has been critical of Netanyahu and his government policies. What do you think, though, Jonathan, are the chances that Netanyahu would use his leverage in this meeting today? Well, I would hope that Prime Minister Netanyahu would use his leverage. Look, Israel's the homeland of the Jewish people, regardless of how they vote or what they value or even where they live. And so it's imperative for the Prime Minister to recognize that what Elon Musk has done and his platform, even before Elon bought it, is to normalize the kind of ugly anti-Semitism that we used to associate with Cossacks and Nazis and white supremacists. Now you can see it 24-7 with just a click on X. What do you think Musk's reaction would be if Netanyahu indeed tried to use his leverage? Do you think he'd get anywhere? Look, I hope the prime minister will bring the receipts it's not hard to see if you open up the platform and just look at the hashtag that was exploding in the last few weeks, ban the ADL. This was a hashtag that was started by a range of anti-Semites and white supremacists and QAnon types after I met with Linda Yaccarino, Elon's CEO, two weeks ago. And you can see hundreds of thousands of mentions, A, with all kinds of ugly invective the type of thing you wouldn't want your children to see, and yet again, it's available with a click on X. So I hope the prime minister will push Elon to say concretely what he will do to take the hate off the platform. And I think you and your organization are in a weird spot because you, you try to combat anti-Semitism on a, on a social media site where the site's owner allows it to happen. So where does that leave you? Yeah, it's a strange situation indeed where the owner is sort of a protagonist in this drama. But look, ADL works with all the tech companies from, from Alphabet to Zoom, all of them. Because again, we want to make it, we want to be constructive and we want to help them get it better. But clearly Twitter is not trending in the right direction. There's real work to be done to detoxify it, if you will. And we hope that'll start with this meeting. Jonathan Greenblatt is National Director of the Anti-Defamation League. Jonathan, thanks. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Drew Barrymore, Jennifer Hudson, and The Talk are delaying their daytime talk shows over the Hollywood strikes. The decisions come after several shows plan to resume production this week and after Drew Barrymore in particular got into some hot water. NPR's Mandalit Del Barco joins us now from Los Angeles to discuss all this. Hi, Mandalit. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. So this is a reversal from what Drew Barrymore and other talk shows announced last week in the midst of this strike. Was it backlash from strikers that led to the change? Yeah, well, Drew Barrymore, you know, since her daytime talk show has become a daytime drama, that's what we're all talking about now. When the writer's strike first started, she publicly said she was in support, and she even turned down hosting the MTV Awards. Then last week, she announced the fourth season of her show was coming back. There were protests on social media, even by her own writers, and the National Book Awards rescinded its invitation for her to host its annual ceremony. Mm. A few days later, on Friday, Barrymore seemed to double down on the decision to resume. She posted a tearful video message on Instagram. I deeply apologize to writers. I deeply apologize to unions. I deeply apologize 
Barrymore said she was taking full responsibility for the decision to resume, but there was so much backlash to that video, people online calling her a scab, that Barrymore quickly deleted it. And yesterday she posted again saying she had listened to everyone and is no longer premiering her next season until the strike ends. Hmm. I mean, but Drew Barrymore wasn't alone in this decision. We mentioned this kind of domino effect. Others were going to come back. Why was there so much attention to Drew Barrymore? Well, for one thing, um, Drew Barrymore did make these very public announcements. And second, she's been famous almost her whole life. People still remember her as the little girl who was friends with E.T. in the 1982 film. She came from Hollywood royalty. Journalist Michael Shulman told me he was reminded of something he learned while writing his book, The Oscar Wars. He says Drew's great aunt, Ethel Barrymore, had been a theater actress and vice president of the union Actors' Equity. Shulman said in 1929, when the union was trying to include movie stars, Ethel Barrymore single-handedly undermined that effort. The union members were really angry at Ethel Barrymore. One of the actors said, if Ms. Barrymore could not say anything beneficial for us, the least she could have done would have been to keep still. It also came out that Ethel Barrymore had met with the producers Irving Thalberg and Jeff Warner in her dressing room and that she had taken a role in a Warner Brothers film. So there was just all this outcry that Ethel had basically parachuted in, derailed this whole effort. Shulman says that effort to unionize movie actors in equity failed. And later that year, 45 of them banded together to create the Screen Actors Guild. That's the union that Drew Barrymore is a member of today and the one that is on strike right now. Yeah, and that strike has really ground Hollywood to a stop. The Writers Guild and major studios will resume negotiations this week. Any sign that anything will change? By all accounts, the two sides are at an impasse. My sources tell me the strike might go on until January. But meanwhile, Bill Maher is set to resume his talk show later this week. And another talk show, The View, has been on the air all throughout. That's NPR's Mandalit Del Barco in Los Angeles. Thanks, Mandalit. Thank you. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Monday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, a second high-ranking official in the Chinese government has apparently disappeared. This time it's the country's defense minister. U.S. officials are wondering if a crackdown is in progress. It's 719. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. Solar Gardens, supporting local clean energy and accessing the benefits of solar power through off-site solar fields. Learn more at solargardensma.com. And Bass Berry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare care providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Former Navy SEAL James Hatch fought in Afghanistan, then enrolled in college. He and his much younger classmates have interrogated that war and talked to the Taliban. The military is kind of, I think, the easy button. We need to stop that. And that means we need to talk to people that we don't want to talk to. I sure as hell didn't want to talk to the Taliban. His senior year at Yale. On the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Showers are likely throughout the day today, and we'll probably get between 1 to 2 inches of rain. The high will be near 70. Tonight, a good chance of more rain than a low around 60. Tomorrow, skies clear for a sunny day with a high near 74. Right now, it's 65 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From SmartMouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. SmartMouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters, or at smartmouth.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Michelle Martin. Tens of millions of Americans are right now getting ready to do something they have not had to do in more than three years, pay their federal student loans. But a lot has changed, both for borrowers and for the system itself. And there's a lot of confusion out there. A few weeks ago, we asked you to send us your questions. And as promised, NPR's Corey Turner, our student loan human decoder ring, is here to answer as many as he can. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Michelle. So let me start with the roughly 7 million borrowers who are new enough that they have never had to make a payment and may have some pretty basic questions. Let's listen. Hi, my name is Alex Ramos. I'm from the Bay Area in California. My question is, what are the different repayment plans and how do I apply for them? All right, Alex, do you want to pay your loan off quickly with as little interest as possible over the long run? Or is your top priority a low monthly payment? Every borrower out there needs to ask themselves this question. That's because the standard and graduated plans lock you into a 10-year window with payments that may be pretty high and inflexible. And then there are income-driven repayment plans, including the newest one, it's called SAVE, that do a really good job of making sure if you don't earn very much, you won't pay very much. SAVE also waives any monthly interest your payment doesn't cover and offers loan forgiveness after a certain amount of time. Michelle, I recommend that borrowers go to studentaid.gov where they can type in their income and family size and their other details. 
into this loan simulator and see pretty clearly what their monthly payments and overall interest is going to be across all of their different repayment options. You know what? I'm still a little confused because, Corey, I've heard you reporting on borrowers who may be just enrolled in the SAVE program, but they are already getting their loans forgiven. So what's happening there? So behind the scenes right now, the Biden administration is doing what it's calling a one-time account adjustment. And what that means is they're going back through everyone's payment histories, no matter the loans they have or the repayment plans they were on at one point. They're now counting this time towards that promise of loan forgiveness. So what we're seeing now and are going to continue to see in the coming months is undergrad borrowers especially who have been in the system for 20 years or more, their debts have started disappearing. I saw this firsthand. Uh, I was talking with a borrower named Nikki Miller as she was logging into her student loan account. So the page is different. (laughs) So you're just looking now and your loans are gone? They're forgiven. Well, I guess you don't have any more questions. I don't. I was wondering why they couldn't get in, too. My loan balance is zero. (laughs) Michelle, I should say for newer borrowers, this one-time account adjustment could still help them as long as they sign up for an income-driven repayment plan. And that includes the new save plan. I also want to say one more word of warning for borrowers with old Fell loans or Perkins loans. They can qualify for this account adjustment, but they have to consolidate their loans into a federal direct loan by the end of this year. Approximately 7 million borrowers have loans in default, and we heard from some of them. And they told us they want to use this moment to reset and hopefully get back on track. My name is Juan Carlos Moreno. I live in Birmingham, Alabama. I have a bunch of student loan debt, and I've been in default now for several years. And I want to address it, and I just don't know where to start or if it's even possible. All right. Well, Juan Carlos, it is totally possible. You know, lots of borrowers don't realize until they're in default that it can be just as punishing as actual loan payments because the government can garnish your wages and claw back your tax refund and even your Social Security. The good news, though, is that getting out of default is actually easier now than it used to be because of this new program. It's called Fresh Start. A good place to start is to go to myeddebt.ed.gov. You can sign up for the new save repayment plan, which should keep your monthly payments reasonable. Once you do that, Ed is also going to remove the record of default from your credit report. And I should say, once they get out of default, they actually qualify for that one-time account adjustment, but they can't qualify as long as they're in default. Well, there's some hope there. Okay, so before we let you go, we've heard from a bunch of worried borrowers who have what are called Parent PLUS loans. My name is Nancy Keel. I live in Huron, Ohio, and I would like to know why have Parent PLUS loans been left out of the new changes made to student loan borrowers? I will qualify for loan forgiveness when I'm 84 years old. Uh, Nancy, thank you for that question. Technically... Nancy's right. Parent Plus borrowers do not qualify for the new SAVE repayment plan. But there is a loophole that the education department and loan servicers are not going to tell borrowers about. If these Parent Plus borrowers break up their loans and consolidate them into two new separate federal direct loans, and then, Michelle, consolidate those loans, the system no longer realizes that they began as Parent PLUS loans. And so this new loan 
will qualify for the more flexible repayment plan, which will also allow for a much lower monthly payment. It is called the double consolidation loophole. Google it. So, Corey, you've been reporting since January about fears that the student loan servicers are not ready for this onslaught of borrowers. And we heard similar fears from borrowers. And given your past reporting, what about it? Yeah, I mean, I I was just looking at unpublished federal data showing multiple servicers have had call wait times so long that more than half of borrowers gave up before getting through on the phone. This is happening, at least in part, because Congress didn't give the education department or its servicers any extra money to do all of this work. So at a time when servicers could be dealing with, you know, 10 times the number of borrowers they're used to, they're being told to cut hours, cut costs. All of which is to say, for borrowers out there, the more you can do online, on your own, without having to get on the phone, the better off you'll be. That is NPR education correspondent Corey Turner. Corey, thank you so much for this in-depth reporting, you know, and your deep concern and willingness to listen and actually answer people's questions. Well, thanks for having me, Michelle. And thanks to all the borrowers out there who sent in their questions. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.40 on Morning Edition. New data shows the number of hate crimes in the U.S. continued to rise significantly last year. We'll look at what's driving those crimes and how the trend may affect upcoming elections. It's 7.29. Join other runners at City Space on September 29th for a jog around the neighborhood and a conversation with leaders in the Boston running community. Free tickets are at WBUR.org events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. And MassTLC's Board Ready Boot Camp, now accepting applications. Learn the skills and build the network needed for your board journey. MassTLC.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. This is day four of the United Auto Workers strike at selected plants operated by Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis. Union workers are off the job at facilities in Missouri, Michigan, and Ohio. Thousands of demonstrators demanding climate justice turned out in New York City yesterday. NPR's Rachel Waldholtz says the protest came ahead of this week's meeting of the U.N. General Assembly and a separate U.N. climate summit. This protest was very much directed at President Biden. Protesters were demanding the president act more quickly to move the U.S. away from burning fossil fuels like coal and oil and gas, the biggest drivers of climate change. The state of California is suing five oil companies, ExxonMobil, Shell, BP, Chevron, and ConocoPhillips. The suit accuses the energy giants of deceiving the public about fossil fuels and climate change. Rob Bonta is California's attorney general. Uh, talking about the impact on global warming and on climate of, of their industry. And a- as they acknowledge that internally and privately, they were telling the world something different. Scientists have linked climate change to storms and wildfires that have caused billions of dollars in damage in California. The American Petroleum Institute is also named in the suit. It says climate policy should be debated in Congress, not a court of law. 
This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Workers at Logan Airport are helping immigrants seeking refuge in Massachusetts. The airport's crisis response team has assisted more than 1,500 new arrivals over the last two months. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reports the airport is the latest place in Massachusetts feeling the impact of the southern border crisis. At night, immigrants sleep on cots, tucked under escalators or along a window in the baggage claim. In the morning, they receive taxi vouchers to go to state offices where they can apply for the family shelter system. Kate Moore from North Suffolk Community Services oversees social workers that assist state troopers at Logan. We'll have people that haven't eaten in days, and so we've had troopers or Massport employees buy 15 pizzas and just, like, have it there. Massport, which oversees Logan, says in a statement the airport is not an appropriate place to house people. It says it's working with the state to find alternatives. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. Law enforcement are searching for former New England Patriots player, player Sergio Brown. Brown and his mother were reported missing in Illinois over the weekend. His mother was later found dead near her home outside Chicago. The death is being investigated as a homicide. Brown joined the Patriots in 2010 and played with the team for two years. Officials with the Federal Aviation Administration are set to be in stow today. The FAA is investigating the weekend crash landing of a rare World War I plane. The incident occurred yesterday morning at a local air show at the American Heritage Museum. No injuries were reported. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. The Patriots' season is off to a rough start. The team ended yesterday's game against the Miami Dolphins with a 24-17 loss. They are now 0-2 for the season. The Red Sox are on the road again today. They'll take on the Texas Rangers after being swept by the Blue Jays this weekend. Back to rainy weather today with showers likely all day. Temperatures will rise to near 70. More rain likely tonight as it falls to the low 60s. Overnight skies gradually clear and tomorrow we'll have a sunny day with highs in the low 70s. Right now it's 64 degrees in Boston. Your WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From Charles Schwab, committed to putting clients first, with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. Learn more at schwab.com. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faudel in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. In China this summer, the foreign minister vanished from the public eye, only to be replaced a month later with no explanation. Now the country's defense minister has dropped off the radar. The government's not saying what happened to him, and there's widespread speculation that he's under investigation. Here to talk us through all this, we're joined by NPR's John Ruich, who is in Shanghai. John, any clues on what's happened to China's defense minister? 
No, nothing official, A. I mean, Li Shangfu's last appearance was uh, near the end of August. He spoke at a China-Africa security conference in Beijing. You know, since then, he's missed some scheduled meetings with foreign military officials and other events. Uh, there's been, uh, you know, media reports outside China citing U.S. officials saying they believe he's under investigation. We haven't been able to confirm it, but the pattern is familiar, though, if indeed he's been detained, you know. China's leader Xi Jinping launched a major anti-corruption drive when he took power a decade ago, and it was a tool for cleaning up the party and shoring up its legitimacy, but also for Xi to build his own power by ousting rivals, pushing aside officials that he didn't think he could trust. So it's not unheard of for officials to disappear in some cases, uh, but it's a black box. We don't know what happened to Lee. And he just got the job not too long ago, right? Yeah, correct. Uh, he was appointed in March, uh, and, and it came after a party congress where Xi Jinping really demonstrated his dominance over the party by installing allies up and down the system. You know, Li and Qin Gang, who's the, the former foreign minister who was uh, replaced, um, they were presumably vetted quite thoroughly by Xi, so the predicament is a, a bit puzzling. You know, also a few weeks ago, generals at the top of China's rocket force, which oversees its ballistic missiles and nuclear arsenal, were abruptly replaced. So there's been this flurry of activity with no explanations from the ruling Communist Party. Drew Thompson, a former Pentagon official now with the National University of Singapore, says this lack of information raises concerns and fuels speculation. I think this hurts them at the end of the day because... How can you have confidence in a system that regularly disappears its high-level leaders, its military officials, its civilian officials, and gives no explanation why? I think a lot of people are wondering about that. Um, does any of this, though, John, change the calculus for the U.S. in dealing with China? Yeah, possibly not. You know, the defense minister doesn't have the same weight in China as, for instance, the secretary of defense in the U.S. It's a more junior post uh, in, in the party hierarchy. Yeah, he doesn't make policy, for instance. Uh, but if, you know, if Lee's disappearance and that of these uh, the rocket force officers has anything to do with the anti-corruption drive, there's potentially, you know, maybe a silver lining in it for Xi. Uh, here's Oriana Schuyler Mastro. She's uh, an expert on the People's Liberation Army at Stanford University. Whatever you say about Xi Jinping clamping down domestically, at least for the military, the anti-corruption campaign and the increase of, of his control over the military has led to a greater professionalization of the Chinese armed forces. They are now a more capable combat-ready force than they were before all this began. But this is disconcerting to outside observers, right? And without knowing actually what happened to these officials and why, it's really hard to draw definitive conclusions. NPR's John Ruich in Shanghai. John, thanks. You bet. Countries mired in conflict and political instability are especially vulnerable to climate disasters. That's on full display in Libya right now, where civil war, aging infrastructure, and a battle for political power between two rival governments contributed to just how deadly the flooding from Storm Daniel was. And when I spoke to Asma Khalifa, a Libyan activist and researcher based in Sweden, she said now Libyan officials are treating the response to the floods like a war, with curfews and checkpoints, and it's hindering relief efforts. It basically cripples 
a country's effective quick response to a disaster and really in relieving its population. Not to mention that war is often synonymous with corruption. It's uh, synonymous with um, abuse of public fund that is going into funding more military operations, which is exactly the case for Libya. The dam have been flagged as vulnerable for a long, long time now by people who live in the valley. There has been a, a report from the Anti-Corruption Authority in 2021 that shows that the government actually allocated money for repairs. A company on their website, when we double-checked this, said that they have repaired the dam, but the dam has not been repaired. So the money has went down somewhere, but not for the dams. And you're referring to the two dams that, in, that were in Dunna that were swept away by the flood. So that was about neglect. And, and nobody refurbishing them. Same for the roads. Most of the roads in Libya are from the 70s and the 80s without having been repaired or maintained. So were there things that should have been done before to prevent the scale of loss we see today? There was a warning. There should have been a communication about it. There should have been an evacuation at least. There should have been immediately an aid response. I don't know if you know this, but this government has not issued a statement in the West. And the parliament in the East did an emergency meeting four days after a disaster has hit. For two days, we heard nothing from them. Two days. Oh my it's not just that they are inadequate, incompetent and corrupt. They are uh, they're careless. And our lives don't matter to them. What is the international community's responsibility here? There, what should places like the U.S., the U.N., France, others be doing? I've been an activist since 2011. I've been in the policy circles talking about this for eight now years. It's This government, at least in the West, comes from an international pact agreement. It comes from the U.N. And we have told them time and time again that as long as you don't put incentive and accountability into any piece, any process that you facilitate, these actors will spoil it. These actors are not interested in uniting a government. They are interested in remaining in power and they're interested in continuing to steal. Um, but there is no, you have an EU that is, is divided because countries are clashing with each other. You have a US which is very hesitant uh, to taking any anything concrete because of what happened in 2011 and its role in 2011. Um, so no one is, is, is interested really in actually making sure those who sit at the table will follow through the agreements. They keep, they keep backing off their promises it needs to um there needs to be accountability for all the corruption there needs to be sanctions on them and their foreign bank accounts and foreign investments incentive that, that actually make them let go of power so that we could have finally an elected government that was Asma Khalifa, an activist and researcher who is tracking the domestic and international response to last week's catastrophic floods in Libya. She spoke to us from Sweden. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR on this Monday morning. Coming up at the top of the hour, we get the latest on negotiations between union workers and the big three automakers as we enter the fourth day of a strike. It's 742.
WBOR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBOR. And Babson College. Explore Babson College graduate programs at their virtual open house on October 4th and 5th. Register at babson.edu slash grad open house. Upper 60s today with showers likely. The rain continues tonight and it falls to around 60. The clouds move out overnight and tomorrow we should have clear skies and a high in the low 70s. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, Massachusetts Cranberry growers are celebrating after India decided to slash tariffs on the fruit. The country is lowering tariffs from 30 percent to 10 percent on fresh, frozen, and dried cranberries. The tariff for cranberry juice will be cut down to 5 percent. Officials say the cuts will boost exports in time for harvest season. A new luxury hotel in Boston celebrates its grand opening today. Raffles Boston opened last week. This is the first location for the hotel brand in America. The building has nearly 150 hotel rooms. Rooms start at around $1,300 a night. Two Boston-area restaurants are ranked as some of the best new restaurants of this year. That's according to a new ranking from Bon Appetit. Cambridge-based Moeka and Quincy-based Roboto both made the list. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Fadel. For the second year in a row, hate crimes in large U.S. cities hit a record high. That's according to a new report from the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University, San Bernardino. Chicago saw nearly 200 reported hate crimes last year. That's up from 104 in the previous year. And that trend is continuing across the country. The 10 largest cities have seen an average increase of 22 percent. Criminal justice professor emeritus Brian Levin has been collecting data on hate crime since 1986, and he joins us now. Thanks for being here, Brian. Well, thank you so much for having me. So what is behind these record high numbers, particularly over the past three years, according to your data? I think a variety of things. The pandemic and how grievance then became aligned with different groups. What I mean is first 
Asian folks were blamed for COVID and the responses to it, and then Jews, et cetera, et cetera. But it allowed this kind of clustering of folks with different grievances to get together online because they were online more. So they really took in a lot of these conspiracy theories and stereotyping, which tied together like sailboats during a surge in 2020, for instance. BLM, Antifa, socialists, and the N-word all went up in related rises online at the same time that we saw record months of anti-Black hate crime, among others. How about the legislation that's been passing, the Don't Say Gay bill in Florida, the bills that are are being debated in states across the country over gender-affirming care for young people, the questions around banning it, and some states have, book banning, school board meetings. Does that contribute to the increase? Oh my gosh, there's such a correlation. Mm. So for instance, anti-black hate crime after dropping as a proportion of all hate crimes through 2019 skyrocketed in 2020 and it went up again in 2021. Out of the five biggest percentage increases in American cities last year, LGBTQ mixed was the number two after other race. And we saw gender nonconform, which includes drag and transgender be in the top five. All at times when we saw an explosion in conflictual and sometimes violent rallies and a slew of anti-LGBTQ legislation across the country. So what American politicians say and the legislation that passes does really matter and has an impact on this type of violence. Could I give you another example? Because with us, data is the star. Six days after 9-11, President Bush spoke of tolerance towards Muslims. Hate crimes dropped precipitously the next day and two-thirds the following year. However, if we look at other election seasons, five days after the San Bernardino terror attack, candidate Trump made his Muslim ban proposal. Hate crimes spiked against Muslims and Arabs about another 23% on top of the increase from the spike. So these kind of catalysts and then political or social invective that is used by celebrities and politicians correlates to increases against targeted groups. When the former Kanye made anti-Semitic rants, hate crimes across cities in the United States went up. Election years we found Every presidential election year since 92, when records were first kept, has been up, and they've been up a lot more. Brian Levin is the director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University, San Bernardino. Brian, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is NPR News. Coming up at 820 on WBUR's Morning Edition, new research shows that Latinos in the U.S. are disproportionately impacted by Alzheimer's, but they remain underrepresented in studies of the disease. It's 749. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy. KnightFoundation.org. And Brookline Bank where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC.
Former Navy SEAL James Hatch fought in Afghanistan, then enrolled in college. He and his much younger classmates have interrogated that war and talked with the Taliban. The military is kind of, I think, the easy button. We need to stop that. And that means we need to talk to people that we don't want to talk to. I sure as hell didn't want to talk to the Taliban. His senior year at Yale. On the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Iran and the U.S. will exchange prisoners today after some $6 billion in Iranian funds was unfrozen. Thousands of auto workers are on day four of a strike as negotiations fail to produce a new contract. And in Massachusetts, today is the first day of a three-week closure to the Green Line extension in Somerville so crews can repair the Squires Bridge. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include UMass Chan Medical School, where faculty, students, and researchers are advancing together. More at umassmed.edu slash together. Showers are likely throughout the day today, and the National Weather Service is warning that periods of heavy rain may lead to localized flooding. It'll be around 70. Tonight, a good chance of more rain. Temperatures will fall to around 60. Gradual clearing overnight means a very different day tomorrow. It'll be sunny and and in the low 70s. Right now, it's 65 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Martinez. This month marks the 25th anniversary of a best-selling book that taught a generation of girls about puberty. As NPR's Tilda Wilson reports, the care and keeping of you was a milestone for millions of millennials and Gen Zers like herself. My friend Kayla Syerson told me her mom never meant for her to have the care and keeping of you. It was contraband. A family friend lent it to her family, but when her mom saw what was in it, she was not sure her homeschooled eight-year-old kid was ready. She took the book away, but not very far away. Then the book appeared on top of my fridge, so I'd stand on the chair and try to read it, but it was really hard because my parents were around all the time, and also the fridge was really tall, so even when I stood on a chair, I couldn't grab it. At first, Syerson says she was fascinated by all the strange new information, like illustrations of the different stages of breast development. And I remember looking at that and thinking like, oh no, I'm never going to look like that. Like, I'm never going to be an adult. But when she got a bit older, Syerson says she used the book to answer questions she did not feel comfortable asking her parents. The book's author, Valerie Schaefer, worked for American Girl magazine before she wrote The Care and Keeping of You. She says back then the magazine got a lot of letters from girls who had questions they also really did not want to ask their parents. When am I going to get my period? What about these pimples? Why do I feel so emotional all the time? You know, I'm embarrassed because I have braces. I mean, just these heartbreaking letters, but also such sweet letters. Schaefer was sympathetic to the girls reaching out. Growing up in the 1960s, she said she had even fewer resources for figuring things out on her own. You would get a box of tampons and it would have this huge fold-out set of instructions, like a roadmap to putting in the tampon. So Schaefer set out to write instructions with a nervous young audience in mind. Another friend, Abigail Hailu, vividly remembers a diagram that showed how to put in a tampon. It told you to, like, angle the tampon towards your back, I remember, like, thinking of that when I, like, first started using tampons. I was like, wow, that info is really helpful. (laughs) It's very, very helpful sometimes just to have a voice somewhere tell you, you've got this. You're normal. No matter what age or stage of life you are in. 
Now, author Valerie Schaefer says the first generation of the care and keeping of you readers are getting older, and they have some new questions. Most often, the thing that people ask me for anymore is a book for perimenopause. Because sometimes even the really big kids just want a caring and accurate book to explain their ever-changing bodies. Tilda Wilson, NPR News. There are lots of medicines to treat depression, and many people benefit from them. But new research points to effective ways to prevent it. Two new studies show that people who adopt healthy habits can significantly reduce the risk of depressive episodes. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports. As part of the Stanford Center on Longevity, there's a team of researchers and healthcare providers who focus on lifestyle medicine. This means they don't just prescribe medications. They take a more integrative and preventive approach. I spoke to Dr. Douglas Nordsey. He's a psychiatrist with the program. We aren't just saying, oh, you're depressed, here's a prescription for Prozac. And we're actually thinking in a more detailed way about a person's lifestyle behaviors and help them to make changes that may be really important in their long-term mental health. To this end, a new study provides more evidence that this is a helpful strategy. It shows people's daily habits, including how much they sleep, what they eat and drink, how they socialize and exercise, play a significant role in their risk of depression. Here, study author Barbara Sahakian, a clinical psychologist at the University of Cambridge Department of Psychiatry. I think the biggest surprise is that if you have a favorable lifestyle, you can reduce the risk of getting depression by 57%, which is really quite a massive amount. They identified seven healthy habits. At the top of the list is sleep. The study showed a good night's rest is key. Sleeping is incredibly important for your mood and and your emotional regulation. Seven to nine hours of sleep a night is optimal for most people. And next on the list is how we nourish ourselves. I always recommend the Mediterranean diet or the MIND diet. They're both very good diets. And not only are they good for your health and your well-being and your brain and cognition, but they also have been shown to help people live longer. Both of these diets emphasize the same things. Lots of greens, lean proteins, and plant-based fats like olive oil and avocados. And when it comes to what you drink, Many people think of alcohol as a social elixir, but having more than a drink or two a night on a regular basis can actually drag you down as alcohol slows the central nervous system. We know that if you have excessive alcohol, that can often lead to depression. And when it comes to physical activity, Stanford's Douglas Nordsey points to the evidence that exercise can have a longer-lasting effect than medications at keeping depression at bay. Antidepressant medicines are somewhat faster in treating an episode of depression, but physical exercise has more durable effects than an antidepressant does. And we've all heard about Prozac burnout and that people get a benefit in the beginning, but then they end up feeling kind of blunted and may lose that effect over time because our brains adapt. And whereas a lifestyle change can have a more permanent and lasting effect. After exercise... Other habits that may help fend off depression involve spending time with family and friends. We found that older adults, if they were socially isolated, they had a much higher risk of getting dementia. And making time for hobbies you enjoy is another way. People who have hobbies report higher life satisfaction. 
Barbara Sahakian says, if parents and schools modeled and prioritized all these healthy habits for kids, we may have healthier communities, since habits learned early in life tend to stick. And though it's probably not possible to eliminate depression, some people are genetically susceptible, and many people benefit from medicine and therapy, Dr. Nordzi says it's also possible for some people to alter their habits with the right kind of help. I certainly see some people who can effectively manage their symptoms with lifestyle interventions alone. The evidence shows there's not one habit or one choice that helps people thrive. It's all of these things together over a lifetime that seem to make a difference. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And i Martinez. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brown University's Masters in Technology Leadership, preparing strategic leaders with innovative skills, professional.brown.edu. AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings and conferences, website at aeevents.com, authentic, artful, accomplished. And Vermont Tourism, trip ideas and planning tools available at vermontvacation.com. Vermont, a little bit like a dream, very much open. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. and Iran are expected to exchange five prisoners each today in a deal that frees up billions of dollars in frozen Iranian oil money. It's Monday, September 18th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, union leaders say there's been little progress in contract negotiations between thousands of workers and the big three automakers. This fight is all about one thing. It's about workers winning their fair share of economic justice instead of being left behind as they have been in the last decades. Also this hour, a recent report finds that Latinos in the U.S. are more likely to develop dementia than white people. And we go to Logan Airport where workers are helping newly arrived immigrants. We'll have people that haven't eaten in days, and so we've had troopers or Massport employees buy 15 pizzas <laughs> and, and just like have it there. Near 70 with rain throughout the day today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. This is Climate Week in New York. Thousands of climate protesters filled Manhattan yesterday. They're demanding meaningful change to combat greenhouse gas emissions. Activist Emma Beretta says young people are pointing to President Biden's climate actions. What he needs to do in order to earn youth votes and win the 2024 election is to end fossil fuels. The march comes the same week as President Biden is in New York for the U.N. General Assembly's annual meeting. He will address the assembly tomorrow. The United Auto Workers' strike continues against three plants in Michigan, Missouri, and Ohio today. Not all UAW workers are on the picket lines. Contract talks between the union and Ford, GM, and Stellantis are ongoing, but weekend negotiations did not appear to yield much progress. 
Tech billionaire Elon Musk is meeting Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in San Jose, California today. This comes as Musk faces accusations of anti-Semitism on his social media platform X. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Jerusalem. Netanyahu and Musk will hold a talk live-streamed on X. The Washington Post reports that allies of Musk hope Netanyahu can help Musk fend off an anti-Semitism controversy. Musk has amplified white supremacist messaging, calling to ban a prominent Jewish group, the Anti-Defamation League, on X. Musk blames the group for a drop in ad revenue. This is the first stop on Netanyahu's first visit to the U.S. since returning to office. This time, he will not have a customary White House visit. He'll meet President Biden on the sidelines of the U.N. General Assembly. And he's expected to face Israeli protesters in the U.S. All year, Israeli protesters have opposed his moves to weaken the powers of Israel's courts. Netanyahu accuses protesters of aligning with the Palestinians and Iran. His office has tried to walk back the comments. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Jerusalem. The Council on American-Islamic Relations is seeking to end what it calls the government's secret watch list. The group says Washington is unjustly targeting Muslims. NPR's Kristen Wright reports CARE is announcing a lawsuit. The Muslim Civil Rights Advocacy Group claims a secret terror watch list almost exclusively targets Muslims for harassment and humiliation when traveling. CARE is filing suit on behalf of several plaintiffs in Michigan, Massachusetts, and New Jersey. Mohammed Khairullah, the mayor of Prospect Park, New Jersey, is one of the plaintiffs. He was invited and then uninvited to an Eid celebration at the White House this year without explanation. In May, Khairullah told NPR he was on a secret watch list that was leaked. CARE says it analyzed that list and found 98% of the names were of Muslim origin. The government created the terrorist screening center database after the September 11th attacks. Other legal challenges are winding their way through the courts. Kristen Wright, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. MBTA passengers are dealing with another planned shutdown. Starting today, part of the Green Line extension is closed through October 12th. WBUR's Sharon Brody explains. The trolleys are not rolling on the Green Line stretch between Lechmere Station and Union Square Station. That weeks-long closure accommodates Massachusetts Department of Transportation work crews. They're repairing the Squires Bridge over the tracks in Somerville. The T says passengers who count on the Green Line in that area should consider taking the bus, just as they did before the Union Square branch of the Green Line extension opened a year and a half ago after decades of setbacks and delays. The T is not providing replacement shuttle bus service, with one exception. Shuttle buses will run during this coming weekend's Fluff Festival in Union Square. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sharon Brody. Also today through October 12th, all Green Line service is suspended between North Station and Government Center. That's for demolition work on the Government Center garage. City leaders want more information on gun trafficking into Boston. City councilors will consider requiring annual reports on the issue from the police department. Members of the council host a hearing on the proposal this morning. Some councilors say the illegal flow of firearms is a major concern contributor to gun violence in the city. The council declared gun violence a public health emergency last year.
Bathroom renovations at 10 Boston public schools are delayed, causing some disruptions for students. The district planned to renovate bathrooms at 16 schools in June of last year. Only six schools finished renovations by the start of the school year. Advocates tell the Boston Globe the delays show an overall disinvestment in BPS school buildings. It's unclear when the rest of the bathrooms will be done with renovations. Cambridge Health Alliance is reinstating a mask mandate today. The health care provider says the mandate extends to employees, patients, and visitors. Mask requirements are expected to remain in place through flu and cold season. UMass Memorial Health reinstated its mask mandate last month following an uptick in COVID-19 cases. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Science Festival. What happens when fashion designers and scientists work together? Find out September 30th when Boston Fashion Week teams up with Cambridge Science Festival to bring you the future of fashion, workshops, demonstrations, and a breathtaking runway experience. CambridgeScienceFestival.org. The Patriots lost to the Miami Dolphins yesterday 24-17. The defeat puts the Pats at an 0-2 start for the season. The Red Sox are also coming off a weekend of losses. They were swept by the Blue Jays in Toronto. The Sox remain on the road to start this week. They take on the Texas Rangers in Arlington tonight. Showers and patchy fog today with up to two inches of rain possible. High temperatures will reach the upper 60s. Cloudy tonight with more rain possible. Temperatures fall to lows in the upper 50s. Tomorrow, sunny with highs in the low 70s. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldin in Washington, D.C. Today is day four of a historic union strike. Three plants have shut down after contract talks broke down last week between the United Auto Workers Union and the Detroit Three automakers. Now, those manufacturers are Ford, GM, and Salantis, the parent company of Jeep and Chrysler. It's the first ever strike against all three at the same time. Tracy Samilton is Michigan Radio's transportation and energy reporter, and she's at the picket line at Ford's assembly plant in Wayne, Michigan. It's one of the three plants where workers have walked out and are now picketing. Good morning, Tracy. Good morning. So, Tracy, you're out there on the picket line. What are people saying? Well, we have a a group of folks out there with their picket signs. They're at the end of the shift they signed up for picketing, and they get excited, of course, when they have somebody drive by, and you will probably hear that as I'm talking to you, beeping their horn in support of the union. And uh, I think you're going to find the same thing here as, you know, other striking plants. They're resolute. They're fairly defiant at this point. So it's the fourth day of the strike. Break down what the key points of contention here, what these auto workers want. Well, uh, it's it's a long list, but I think, of course, number one is wages. Yeah. The union has asked for 40 percent increase in wages over the four years of the next contract. And they've come down somewhat to the mid-30s, but they're still pretty far from the top counteroffer from Ford and General Motors, which is 20 percent. They also want the end of tiers to wages so that you just start right away with the same wage as anyone else who's been at the plant for a longer period of time. And they want 
the thousands of temp workers that these companies are using to be offered full-time work. Um, those temp workers are making $20 an hour tops in mm. some of the, the plants. And uh, it's really hard to make it these days on that. So yeah. there have been layoffs though, right? How do those relate to the strike? Well, Ford immediately said they were laying off 600 workers at this plant here, Michigan Assembly Plant in Wayne, Michigan, because the union called off the paint shop workers and the final assembly workers. And Ford said, well, that means we can't do the rest of the work here at the plant. So those folks have been laid off. And General Motors says they are going to need to lay off folks at their Fairfax plant because the Wentzville plant, which is on strike, produces parts for Fairfax. So we're expecting that to happen, too. That's Tracy Samilton, Michigan Radio's transportation and energy reporter at the picket line at Ford's assembly plant in Wayne, Michigan. Thank you, Tracy. Yeah, thank you. The man behind this strike is the president of the United Auto Workers Union, Sean Fain. He was elected this year on promises to end corruption and win back concessions given to automakers, and he joins me now. Good morning, Sean. Good morning. So you met with General Motor and Ford over the weekend. Are you any closer to a deal? Um, <clears throat> we've put you know full offers to all three companies before the strike deadline, and uh, you know we've uh, <clears throat> really. Uh, you know, had had minimal conversations over the weekend, so uh, you know the ball's still in their court. So uh, you know we're going to keep moving as we have, and uh, and just see how things progress. Now, as we heard from our reporter, one of the major sticking points in the negotiations has been the demand for a wage increase, a demand of forty percent. The three auto companies have come up to above twenty percent. The highest offer is is that enough? No, it's not enough. And and you know people have to understand where we've been. Um, you know, uh, where our workers have been. Uh, you know, you go back to the economic recession, which, you know, happened due to, you know, banks, um, you know, abusing a system and uh, creating the issue. And then, uh, you know, a lot of the issues that happened in the auto industry were, were bad decisions on the part of the companies. And then for, unfortunately, you know, as always, the working class and the workers always get blamed and feel the brunt of bad decisions. And whether it was the banking uh, industry and and, you know, their manipulation of the housing market. And, you know, they get bailed out. They get trillions of dollars. And, and you know, working class people lose their homes. And it's the same in the auto industry. Companies made bad decisions. The workers get blamed for everything that's wrong with it. And uh, since that, you know, we made a lot of a lot of sacrifices at that time. We lost, we sacrificed cost of living allowance. Um, you know, we lost retirement security, um, you know, job security. And, you know, the, the whole fight in this that we're standing for now is we've went backwards roughly $10 an hour in wages over the last uh, 16 years. We, and the, and the, the sad part of this is, in the same time, in the last decade, these companies have made a quarter trillion dollars in profits. In the last six months alone, they made $21 billion in profits. And in the last four years, I think this sets the real tone and the real picture of, of why we're in this fight right now. In the last four years, for the big three, North American profits are up 65%. CEOs gave themselves 40% pay increases in the last four years. Stock buybacks are up 1,500% in the last four years. The average price of vehicles went up 34% in the last four years. Inflation so, went up 20%, and, and, and our wages went up 6%. Yeah. And so, so when people say that if workers you know, get higher wages, it's going to drive up the price of cars, 
This has all happened with us going backwards in wages. Labor cost 4 to 5% of the cost to make a vehicle. There are three plants that are shut down right now. It's been four days, no deal so far. Are you planning to call for more walkouts, shut down more plants? Um, that's up to the companies. Uh, you know, we were, you know, and that's the thing I want to make clear to people. You know, we were very upfront from day one over eight weeks ago when we began bargaining with the companies. You know, we stated then that we were not going to do, if they expected to wait till the last minute and start bargaining, um, you know, they were going to they were going to be disappointed because, you know, we expected to get down to our members' demands and take care of business early so we wouldn't be in this position. The companies chose not to. And so they waited till last week to actually start really talking. Mm -hmm. And, um, so, you know, we have a long way to go, and uh, if, if the company does not respect the demands of our workers, then we will, we will escalate action. And very quickly before we let you go, there have been temporary layoffs in connection to these strikes. What, are, what does this mean for workers who need to survive during these negotiations? Um, we're not going to leave our workers behind. Unfortunately, you know, that's the choice the companies made. The companies didn't have to lay these workers off. You know, it was a choice. They're trying to intimidate workers, but, uh, you know, We'll take care of our workers uh, no matter what we have to do. United Auto Workers Union President Sean Fain. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, this is a wild story. Cave explorer Mark Dickey emerged above ground last week after a rescue operation that made news headlines around the world. Dickey became extremely sick after descending 3,000 feet into one of Turkey's deepest caves as part of an expedition. An international rescue team of nearly 200 people mobilized to rescue the American scientist. Now today, he's on the mend and looking forward to getting back inside another cave. Mark Dickey joins me now from Turkey, along with his partner, Jessica Van Ord, who assisted in the rescue rescue operation. Mark, Jessica, thanks uh, for joining us. Mark, let's start with you on this, uh, considering that you were the one trapped underground for 12 days. Um, how are you feeling now? Uh, every single day, I keep getting better. As of uh, yesterday, I'm out and about in Ankara. It's uh, great to be above ground and mobile. Do you know what caused your internal bleeding? Because that's, that's what was happening down there in that cave. That's actually been quite the challenge. So the amount of time between when the bleed happened to when we were able to get to definitive care and get imaging was pretty substantial. And then on top of that, they're obviously providing therapy, medication, treatment while I'm in the cave under transport. So the usual ability to diagnose these things has been severely hampered. So really the goal is not so much necessarily to, to be at a pinpoint exactly what happened, but to be able to say that there is a there is no risk of this reoccurring um, in the future. I mean, you were 3,000 feet underground, you start vomiting blood. Were you thinking, okay, this could be it? Uh, there was a moment down there that that was the case. It certainly wasn't when I started vomiting blood, but it was after I kept vomiting blood and uh, enough blood that the, you know, the body can only sustain so much blood loss before it gives out. And uh, I was getting closer to that amount as time went on. Jessica, you were with Mark during this expedition. I mean, technically, you were the first rescuer on scene, right? I mean, you were you were right there. What did you say to Mark? When it first happened, he started listing off symptoms, and I was essentially just doing a medical assessment, uh, asked him what he needed on the ground. He said, privacy. <laughs> um, and then back at, back at camp, we were just, we were making plans. I was getting phone numbers of people we knew from European Cave Rescue Association, just everyone who would be useful in this incident. Wow. Mark, can you describe what it feels like to be down there? I mean, as it is, uh, what, it would have taken, what, 15 hours to get back up as far deep as you were for an experienced climber or a caver with ideal conditions, right? 
It is otherworldly. Uh, caves uh, exude a lot of fear for people, fear of the unknown. Um, but caves are honestly very straightforward and they're they're kind of stark and they're kind of bare. You're talking rock, mud, dirt. Um, you might be very lucky from a science standpoint and find new species, new bacterias, uh, new cave adapted creatures that are very small insects. Um, and uh, but it's the the beauty comes from gorgeous carved stream passages with active water, you know, gushing through it, uh, in cave cliffs that soar farther than the the eye can see in the headlamps. This is where you're pushing humans human limits of exploration in the in the world that we know. Jessica, what do you love about caving, especially as far deep as as you two were? It's sort of my happy place. When I was exiting the cave, and I heard that this had grown into a huge incident with media waiting on the surface for us. I just took a minute to turn off my light and sit in the complete darkness of the cave. And Mark, I'm going to assume that you and Jessica probably can't wait to get back into another cave, right? Despite everything that happened. Yes. Absolutely. I wouldn't even use the word despite. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like if a football player gets an injury, do they suddenly stop playing football from from then forward? Because, oh, my God, they might get hurt. And in this case, the medical illness wasn't even related to the cave or caving. Um, as far as we know, it could have happened absolutely anywhere. So, yeah, no, I'm I'm ready to go caving again. And, and hopefully, uh, hopefully I'll get a go ahead from the doctors that I have no ongoing medical yeah. concerns and uh, I won't be restricted. All right, cave explorers. Cave explore. Those were cave explorers, Mark Dickey and Jessica Van Ord. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. You're starting your Monday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, after a record-setting summer of hot weather, the U.N. hosts a climate summit in New York this week. President Biden doesn't plan to attend despite climate protests by thousands this weekend, urging him to take action. It's 819. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. WBUR supporters include the Freedom Trail Foundation. Experience over 250 years of history on Boston's iconic trail with its 16 historic sites and tours. TheFreedomTrail.org. And La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare in a new food truck available for catering and events. Online booking at LaCuchara.com. Dr. Linda Vidon. Vice President of Clinical Management for Delta Dental of Massachusetts, a WBUR underwriter. We're pleased to underwrite WBUR as an effective way to increase awareness of the importance of oral health. Your oral health is a key predictor of overall health with direct links to diabetes, heart disease, mental health, and more. We believe that you can express your health through better oral health. For more information, visit expressyourhealthma.org. Showers are likely throughout the day today. We'll probably get between one to two inches of rain. The high will be near 70. Tonight, a good chance of more rain and a low around 60. Tomorrow, skies clear for a sunny day with a high near 74. Right now, it's 64 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple. 
in stores or delivered from hintwater.com. From your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, helping nonprofit organizations, including social service organizations, with their accounting needs, more at yourparttimecontroller.com. From Proven Winners, with Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, offering a variety of native shrubs and trees for a landscape that's gentler on the earth. More at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash native shrubs. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm e. Martinez. Latinos are one and a half times more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease than non-Hispanic whites of the same age. Now, that's according to a report put out by the Alzheimer's Association in July. It made me remember the two choices facing my family when my grandpa was slipping into dementia and they were looking for a facility to care for him. One was close by and had Spanish speakers on staff, but it was understaffed and the upkeep left a lot to be desired. The other was fully staffed with pristine facilities, but was far away, expensive with hardly anyone that spoke Spanish. So my family decided to care for him at home for a grueling, painful decade until he passed away. It's a decision facing the families of many aging Latinos in the U.S. who are having a hard time finding medical and long-term care that is culturally inclusive. Mario Tapia founded the Latino Center on Aging in 1991. He says one key ingredient in culturally competent care is music. That's the part that seniors enjoy the most. It's, it's very surprising, you know, the, the reaction they have, especially when you play old-time music, you know, La Bamba and all of those. I remember how my grandfather used to respond to music. He didn't say anything, but his demeanor changed when he heard music from when he was a kid growing up near Guayaquil in southern Ecuador. I spoke with Mario Tapia, along with Maria Aranda, the executive director of the USC Edward R. Roybal Institute on Aging. And I started by asking just how prepared the United States is for the growth of the population of older Latinos. Not at all. What's happening is they are experiencing a very unusual growth. Uh, just to give you a general statistics uh, projection that we had from 1990, there was about 700,000 Hispanic 60 plus in the country. And right now it's 5 million. And that is going to be 22 million in 30 more years. So the country is not prepared. Uh, it seems like it's not being taken seriously. And Maria, as someone who specifically is trying to reach out to get Latinos involved in Alzheimer's clinical trials, does what Mario says uh, track with you? Yes, what Mario is saying is really on point. As a social worker and someone who do, has done research in the area of minority aging, what we have found in community-based settings is that the healthcare and a social service or human service workforce is really ill-prepared to understand not only the preferences of the specific subgroup, but the very unique presenting problems that they bring to the fore. Maria, what are some of those unique problems? One unique problem is they come to agencies with a very low level of understanding of what medical conditions are, like dementia, Alzheimer's, et cetera. So people come to, for example, physicians with years of already having significant memory loss, 
and not having a formal diagnosis uh, regarding, you know, is this Alzheimer's? Is this some other condition that can be reversed? Maria, when it comes to diagnosis, how important is it to have that explained in Spanish? Does it matter if something is explained in Spanish as opposed to in English? Well, good medical care is based on good communication. But unfortunately, Latinos and Latino families many times go undiagnosed. For example, I conducted a study some years ago, and when we recruited uh, Latino families into a dementia uh, care program, we realized that many of them were not diagnosed uh, by any physician, even living with the disease for between four and five years. And if you don't have access to specialists that can implement diagnostic guidelines in your language of preference, then you have a problem. Well, one is language, and secondly, is the fear of uh, not knowing what to cook, like the meals, you know, that has to be uh, culturally relevant for a community to continue coming back. If you go to a center and they serve you kielbasa and sauerkraut, people won't come back and they tell their friends, don't go there because uh, the food is that culturally relevant to us. The Biden administration recently proposed new minimum standards for nursing home staffing. Mario, how should any changes also factor in a level of cultural competence? Well, first, we don't develop awareness in elected officials and national organizations dealing with Alzheimer and other dementias. We are not going to move this issue, especially with the private uh, organization dealing with Alzheimer's. I have found that surprise in New York for the national conference. I wanted to have someone working directly with the community, and they, they couldn't find, they didn't have any bilingual person there in New York. And secondly, like in South Florida, 70% of the population of Miami-Dade County is Hispanic, and 67% speak Spanish at home. Those are the statistics. But somehow it's been pretty difficult, difficult even to print a bilingual resource guide. Maria, what about you on that? If there are any changes to nursing home staffing, how much should they factor in a, le a level of cultural competence? Well, even before we get to cultural and linguistic competency, we have to understand that older Latinos, when they do go to a nursing home, they're more likely to go to nursing homes that have serious deficiencies in performance and quality. They are typically understaffed and they provide poor care. So if the Biden administration is looking at this and attempting to increase the quality of care, they should start with those nursing homes that are in minority communities. Maria Aranda is the executive director of the USC Edward R. Roybal Institute on Aging in Los Angeles. And Mario Tapia founded the Latino Center on Aging based in New York City. Mario, Maria, thank you very much for sharing this with us. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you. This is NPR News. 
Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel tells us how the southern border crisis is being felt at Logan Airport, with the workers there providing beds for sometimes dozens of newly arrived immigrants. It's 829. WBUR's new field guide to Boston can help you discover and rediscover the place we call home. You'll learn about the city's neighborhoods, history, and urban legends. Dive in now at WBUR.org slash field guide. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Barry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Ukraine's president is scheduled to address this week's meeting of the U.N. General Assembly in person. Volodymyr Zelensky is expected to seek broader support for Kyiv as it continues fighting off Russian forces. Last year, Zelensky spoke to the U.N. in a pre-recorded video address. Ahead of the General Assembly, NPR's Michelle Kellerman says the U.N. is taking stock of the goals set some time ago, targeting hunger and poverty. Elizabeth Cousins, who runs the U.N. Foundation, was one of the diplomats who negotiated the Sustainable Development Goals. This year marks the halfway point to those 30-year targets. They're incredibly important. They're the world's plan for a healthier, safer, and fairer planet for us all. And they are off track. You know, only 12 percent of the targets are estimated to be on track and not even in all places. So um, we definitely have a big job ahead of us. The U.N. Secretary General says he hopes the summit will help rescue those goals at a time when the world is facing climate change, conflicts and growing inequalities. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News. Members of the United Auto Workers remain on strike against Detroit's big three automakers. They continue to walk picket lines at three plants, ones in Missouri, Michigan, and Ohio, belonging to Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis. Among the UAW's demands is a 36 percent pay hike. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. High mortgage rates and home prices led to a disappointing end to the summer real estate market. That's according to the Massachusetts Association of Realtors. The group's monthly data for August shows home buyers continue to struggle with prices and a lack of inventory. WBUR's Zinjor and Wameka reports. The median price of a single-family home in Massachusetts hit $630,000 in August. That's nearly 6% higher than last August. Condo prices also increased. David McCarthy is president of the Massachusetts Realtors Association. He says limited housing inventory is an issue. So when you have less choices, it's competitive. And when it's competitive, somebody will decide that they want that house, which is what is keeping prices essentially as strong on the sale side as they are. It's making the state less and less affordable, which is a significant concern. McCarthy says as inventory remains low, the market will favor sellers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. 
New data show the MBTA is slow to make necessary fire safety repairs along the T. An analysis by the Boston Globe found it takes the agency more than six months to repair broken standpipes. Those standpipes pump water into the subway system for firefighting. About one-fifth of all standpipes failed key safety tests in the last four years. The MBTA says it's implementing a new standpipe inspection system. Governor Maura Healey is moving to ban single-use plastics in all state agencies. That includes a ban on purchasing single-use plastic bottles. It's one of two executive orders Healey is expected to sign this week. The second policy sets out new state goals to increase biodiversity in Massachusetts. Healey made the announcement this morning at a Clinton Global Initiative meeting in New York City. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Handel and Haydn Society. Experience Handel's timeless tale of triumph over adversity, Israel and Egypt, October 6th and 8th at Symphony Hall. HandelandHaydn.org. The Patriots are now 0-2 to start the season. The team fell last night to the Miami Dolphins. Final score was 24-17. to The Red Sox remain on the road following a series of defeats against the Toronto Blue Jays this weekend. The Sox travel down to Texas today to face off against the Rangers. That game gets underway just after 8 p.m. Back to rainy weather today with showers likely all day. Temperatures will rise to near 70. More rain likely tonight as it falls to the low 60s. Overnight skies gradually clear and tomorrow we'll have a sunny day with highs in the low 70s. Right now it's 64 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldin in Washington, D.C. Global leaders are gathering in New York this week for the annual meeting of the U.N. General Assembly. Yeah, climate change is very much on the agenda. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres has invited countries to a special climate summit. Then there are talks and events scheduled throughout the week and, of course, protests. Tens of thousands of people marched in Manhattan yesterday in one of the biggest climate protests we've seen since before the pandemic. Yeah, and NPR's Rachel Waldholtz was there, and now she's here with us from the Climate Desk. Good morning, Rachel. Good morning. Okay, so Rachel, you were at that march yesterday. What were protesters demanding? Protesters at this march were focused on basically one big thing, and that was phasing out fossil fuels. And I should know that this protest was very much directed at President Joe Biden. So protesters were demanding the president act more quickly to move the U.S. away from burning fossil fuels like coal and oil and gas, mm-hmm. which are the biggest drivers of climate change. You know, and, and actually Biden has taken some really significant steps on climate change. So the Inflation Reduction Act, for instance, which passed last year, directed 
hundreds of billions of dollars to technologies like wind and solar and electric vehicles, all to cut U.S. emissions. But the organizers of yesterday's protest say that that is not enough, and they want Biden to stop approving new fossil fuel projects, basically to use his executive powers as aggressively as possible to curb the production and use of oil and gas in the U.S. Hmm. And these protests and this week at the U.N. General Assembly is coming after a summer of extreme weather. Heat waves, deadly wildfire in Maui, absolute devastation after flooding in Libya. Would phasing out fossil fuels more quickly help prevent summers like the one we just saw? Well, the short answer is that we have already locked in a certain amount of warming. Mm -hmm. So now it's about preventing things from getting much worse. So our current level of warming already makes many types of extreme weather more likely. Heat and drought can make wildfires more intense. A warmer atmosphere makes heavy rain more common. That contributes to flooding. But scientists say if we want to avoid even more common extreme weather and other more catastrophic consequences of climate change, like really high sea level rise, we need to cut global emissions roughly in half by the end of this decade and reach basically zero emissions by 2050. Mm. So that means burning a lot less fossil fuels in the very short term. And Right now, we are not currently on track to meet those targets. A recent UN report found that countries need to cut emissions much faster. And a lot depends on what happens in this decade. Yeah. And right now, global, powerful people all in New York. Climate is on the agenda this week. What should we expect from the Climate Ambition Summit the UN chief is hosting? It's a good question because this is a new event um, and it's basically the secretary general is trying to spotlight exactly this issue. So he's asking countries uh, and also companies to come to the summit with new plans to get on track, to mm. slash emissions more quickly. Uh, in fact, he made it clear that countries are only welcome to, to participate in the summit if they come with credible new commitments to phase out fossil fuels or for wealthy countries, new funding commitments to help developing countries cut emissions or adapt. Um, when he announced the summit, he was really clear on this. Uh, he actually said, quote, there will be no room for backsliders, greenwashers, blame shifters or repackaging of announcements from previous years, mm. unquote. Um, and apparently that bar leaves a lot of countries out because so far it's not entirely clear who is going to show up. Uh, neither Biden nor Xi Jinping of China plan to be there. That's the world's two largest emitters, though Biden is sending his climate envoy, John Kerry. Um, but ultimately, this is an effort by the UN to highlight countries that are taking more action and create some peer pressure for other countries to build some momentum in the lead up to big annual climate negotiations that are coming this winter in Dubai. That's NPR's Rachel Waldholtz. Thanks so much, Rachel. Thank you. Starting today, judges in Illinois can no longer order people accused of crimes to put up money to get out of jail while awaiting trial. A handful of other states have eased rules around cash bail, but Illinois is the first to ban it completely. Studies show that cash bail disproportionately affects blacks, Latinos and low income people. Chip Mitchell with member station WBEZ in Chicago has our story. Two years of intense public debate culminated this summer when the Illinois Supreme Court rejected constitutional challenges to the law. Today, criminal courts across the state are doing away with what they used to call bond hearings. At 1230 will be what we call initial appearance hearings. On a recent panel, Cook County Circuit Judge Mary Marubio laid out plans for courthouses she helps oversee. She said judges will hold in-depth hearings on whether releasing a defendant would pose a safety threat or flight risk. Not too different from how we release people now. 
It's just that money will no longer be a condition of release. I'm excited. I feel like a, a baby has been born. That's Lavette Mays. She's been organizing against cash bail since her own criminal case that started with a 2015 fight with a family member. Mays was charged with aggravated battery. Um, my bail was set at $250,000, $25,000 to walk. I couldn't afford that bond. She spent more than a year in jail awaiting trial. A judge eventually lowered the bond and she took a plea agreement. But she says she lost her home and livelihood, and the jail time was rough on her two kids. Today, as Illinois ends money bond, Mays says she's relieved. <sighs> I feel like a low has been lifted because we finally got something that's going to help the black and brown community. Now I can sleep knowing that people just won't be able to be sent back to jail because they can't afford to pay bail. In suburban DuPage County, state's attorney Bob Berlin is not celebrating. He and most other county prosecutors in Illinois opposed the law's initial version. Even after he worked on amendments that toughened the law, Berlin says it still doesn't give judges enough discretion to jail pretrial defendants. But he's actually expecting a smooth transition this week. We're all professionals. We all have an obligation to follow the law whether we agree with it or not. Advocates are worried that judges will be skittish about freeing defendants without cash bail and could increasingly rely on ordering home detention with electronic bracelets as a substitute. A state agency is rolling out a new electronic monitoring program for defendants in 70 Illinois counties. That's not going over well with the Cook County Public Defender's Office, which represents defendants who can't afford to pay for a lawyer. Assistant Public Defender Colleen Gorman told reporters last week her clients who work in trades, like construction, might lose their jobs. The electronic monitoring program requires that every week, a few days before, they submit a letter from their boss saying what their hours are going to be that week and what locations they will be at. We know this is impossible. A plumber doesn't know whose plumbing's going to go out next week. Some research suggests that curtailing reliance on cash bail has had a minimal effect on public safety. That was the finding of a Loyola University Chicago study of four parts of the country. Starting today, all eyes will be on Illinois. For NPR News, I'm Chip Mitchell in Chicago. This is NPR News. You're listening to WBUR on a Monday morning. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us about efforts to create new ways for Muslim American families to buy homes in accordance with their religion. Upper 60s today with showers likely. The rain continues tonight and it falls to around 60. The clouds move out overnight and tomorrow we should have clear skies and a high in the low 70s. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, Watertown-based Dumora Therapeutics is now a publicly traded company. It's only the second Boston-area biotech company to go public this year. Biotech officials hope the move inspires other biotech companies in the area to go public if trading goes well. A longtime Thai restaurant in Brookline is closing its doors at the end of this month. Dokbua Thai Kitchen on Harvard Street first opened more than two decades ago. The owners haven't said why they're shutting down. Framingham-based TJX plans to open a third discount active and outdoors clothing store in the state. The company is opening a Sierra in Northborough. TJX tells the Boston Business Journal the new store is part of its plan to open 18 new Sierra stores this fiscal year. It's 844. 
WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. And Solar Gardens, offering solar subscriptions that allow households to access the benefits of solar power through off-site solar fields. Learn more at solargardensma.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Every night, workers at Logan Airport provide temporary beds for travelers with canceled flights. Lately, they've also been providing beds for migrants seeking refuge in Massachusetts. The numbers can vary from half a dozen to nearly 90 on one especially busy night. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reports that it's part of the impact from the southern border crisis. Welcome to Logan International Airport. It's a bit before 6 a.m. and I'm in the baggage claim area. Scattered along the walls, under the escalators, there are these green cots. I'm going up to one family of three that's sleeping under an escalator, but near an art installation that's clanking and dinging and binging. Did you fly here? Yeah, from Texas? San Antonio. San Antonio, okay, okay, okay. We communicate through a combination of English, Spanish, and Haitian Creole, plus a translation app. The father tells me his family is from Haiti, and they made their way here over the course of seven years. I can see roughly 20 people sleeping in the terminal. About a dozen appear to be newly arrived immigrants. First thing in the morning, every morning, seven days a week, our troopers do a sweep, and my clinician does a sweep of the airport, just literally walking around the airport looking for families. Kate Moore is with North Suffolk Community Services. She oversees social workers that team up with state troopers at Logan. They help travelers who are in distress, drunk, suicidal. Recently, their mission has expanded a lot. So we started getting just planes of people coming from Texas and other border states being flown up to Massachusetts and not knowing what they're supposed to do once they get to the airport. Moore says her team has assisted more than 1,500 new immigrants just in the last two months. We'll have people that haven't eaten in days, and so we've had troopers or Massport employees buy 15 pizzas and just, like, have it there. While some families arrive by air, others are sent by Boston Medical Center. The hospital recently stopped allowing unhoused families to sleep in its emergency department. For years, many homeless families have turned to hospitals for help applying to Massachusetts' unique state-run shelter system. And this summer, the numbers were higher than ever. They were driven in large part by an increase in newly arrived families. It was profound. Melissa Dean runs the ER social work team at Boston Children's Hospital. She says one night in July, there were 77 parents and children sleeping in her hospital's lobby. Boston Children's activated their emergency management team, organizing shower schedules, kids' activities, and psychological supports. The kitchen staff had to create all these meals for the families and, you know, distribute them. And so their volume, you know, doubled. You know, everyone's getting Cheetos for lunch. You know, you can imagine what the carpet's going to look like. But lately, the numbers at Boston Children's have eased. Dean believes hospitals are no longer the front door to the state's family shelter system. We're not the front door. I think we have maybe 13 people today, you know, that we're sending out. And so we're a side door. 
That may be partly because more families are getting help at Logan, but it's also because the state opened two family welcome centers this summer to relieve the crush on emergency rooms. Kate Walsh is the Secretary of Health and Human Services for the Commonwealth. This is not a smooth system. It's not to say that we are out of the woods, but we have a process where people who are newly arrived to our country can get basic health care screening, connection to the services that they need, and, and a roof over their heads through that mechanism. The Welcome Centers have served more than 1,600 families so far. But many families still need help getting to the centers, and they need a place to sleep if they arrive when everything's closed. That burden increasingly falls to Logan. As the sun comes up, the airport terminal is still quiet. It's now a bit past 6.30, and there's a state trooper dressed all in black walking around gently waking people up. He's taking pictures of their passports, asking them where they came from. And he tells them where they can apply for shelter. The team at Logan gives families vouchers for a taxi ride there. When we have enough people, because sometimes we have upwards of 60 people at one time, um, they'll get a chartered bus and send them. Kate Moore says she's impressed by the response at Logan, but she also calls the situation completely unsustainable. We worry about kind of how long can this go on for. The state police didn't respond to requests for comment, and Massport, which runs Logan, sent a written statement saying the airport is not an appropriate place to house people and it is working with the state to find other options. As the newcomers head out of the terminal, a recording plays overhead. It's a message from Governor Maura Healey, welcoming vacationers, business travelers, and others. In Massachusetts, no matter who you are or where you're from, we welcome you. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on the deal between the U.S. and Iran that's expected to allow for a prisoner swap between the two countries today. Also, breaking news that buildings have caught fire in Sudan's capital after heavy fighting between the army and rival forces. It's 8:50. WBUR supporters include Babson College, who believes the future is fueled by entrepreneurial leaders. Learn to lead with impact and become a driving force for change. Explore Babson. Babson's full-time in-person programs and part-time in-person and online programs at their graduate virtual open house October 4th and 5th. Register at babson.edu slash gradopenhouse. Former Navy SEAL James Hatch fought in Afghanistan, then enrolled in college. He and his much younger classmates have interrogated that war and talked to the Taliban. The military is kind of, I think, the easy button. We need to stop that. And that means we need to talk to people that we don't want to talk to. I sure as hell didn't want to talk to the Taliban. His senior year at Yale. On the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Five Americans detained in Iran are expected to be released today as part of a prisoner swap between the two countries. Global leaders are gathering in New York for the U.N. General Assembly's annual meeting that begins today. And Massachusetts Governor Moore Healey has announced two new climate initiatives, including a single-use plastics ban for state agencies. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Explore waterfront views and new work by leading Boston artists. 
icaboston.org. Showers at around 70 today. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston. How temp workers became a sticking point in the auto strikes. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. And by Odoo, focused on providing all-in-one open-source business management software with fully integrated applications for every business need. More at odoo.com. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. The United, United Auto Workers and the Detroit Automakers failed to agree to a new contract this weekend. A shorter work week and wage increases are among the union's demands. But striking workers are also mad about how Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis use temporary and so-called tiered workers. These are workers who receive lower pay and benefits for doing the same work. Marketplace's Kristen Schwab looks at how the industry came to rely on those kinds of workers. When automakers faced bankruptcy in 2008, auto workers faced a tough decision. Lose jobs or agree to contract changes that would help the companies get a federal bailout. The union chose the latter. This was a concession that they had to make in order to sustain the bailouts and to have some kind of recovery. Todd Rutherford, who researches labor and the automotive industry at Syracuse University, says from that moment on... Almost all of the workers that were hired were on some kind of tiered system. Up to 40% of workers in some plants are tiered, Rutherford says, and up to 10% are temporary. Harry Katz, a professor of collective bargaining at Cornell, says this lets companies adjust their workforces depending on the economy and saves them money. The base wage is less and the fringe benefits are substantially less for temporary workers. And workers don't have much room for movement. Victor Chen is the author of Cut Loose, a book about labor changes in the auto industry. That a lot of these new hires get stuck in this limbo of not being able to move up to the higher tier. Or they get stuck being temps for years. Chen says it's not just the automakers that do this. Temporary and tiered workers are becoming more common in hospitality, healthcare, and other industries. Something like a quarter of union contracts include multiple tiered structures. He says unions can curb the use of these workers by establishing time limits on how long a person can stay in a tier or be classified as a temp. I'm Kristen Schwab for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is down four-tenths of a percent. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are down in the one to two-tenths percent range, with the Dow future down just 11 points. The 10-year Treasury yield is at 4.353%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by JLL, leveraging global data, local experience, and technology in its quest to solve complex commercial real estate challenges. JLL.com. See a brighter way. The global economy is slowing down just a bit compared to last year, according to the IMF's latest estimate. And when things are economically uncertain, people often put their money in places they perceive as safe. U.S. Treasuries, for example. But also gold. The price of gold has been rising this year, hovering around all-time highs of $2,000 an ounce. The BBC's Leanna Byrne stopped by one jeweler who's seen demand soar. 
They say when the economy is looking uncertain, put your money in gold. And if you want to invest in gold, you have three choices. You can purchase shares of a mutual or exchange traded fund. You can trade in futures and options, or you can just buy the real thing. Because they saw how much it rose, it made people aware of how much money they can make in gold. That's Rishi Dunga, who runs DD Jewelers with his family. The Jewelers is in Spark Hill, an inner city area in Birmingham in the West Midlands in England, known for its South Asian community. And through one of those double door systems you find in banks, there's lots of shiny gold bangles, necklaces, earrings, and a lot more. We sell a lot of bridal jewelry for Asian weddings. So that would be things like this, the bangles, they'll buy typically um, a set of bangles of six to eight bangles there might weigh about 100 grams. But then alongside that, they need to buy a necklace for the bride as well, which she'll wear all on a wedding day. So she'll wear something like those over there, these like long necklaces, they're about another 100, 120 grams. It's a big investment alone. Because the idea is that it's going to cost a certain amount now, but in the future, that price is going to rise. Exactly. It's that, yeah, it'll go up in 10 to 20 years when they might want to sell it for, typically what people do, they sell it for either a house deposit or an investment, or they'll sell it for the children's future. And so if I wanted to buy six bangles and a necklace and maybe a pair of earrings there, how much would that set me back? You'd be looking 10,000 wow. approximately, possibly more depending on the weight, but average nine to 10,000 pounds. That's even before they've paid for the wedding. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's expensive being Asian. <laughs> Do you ever have people trying to come in with fake gold? Some mother-in-laws have given fake, fake bangles, oh, no. fake gold. And they found out 10 years later when I've tested it. And there's a whole little drama happening in front of me, but it's brilliant. It happens. There is some fake gold out there. So you're responsible for some family rifts. Yeah, but I just sit there just trying not to smile. <laughs> Jewelry isn't the only way you can invest in physical gold. You can even buy gold bars. If you give Rishi $200 a year, He'll store them for you in a safe deposit box because crime is so rife in the community. Of course, I asked to see inside the vault. Safe deposit vault. Oh, wow. So it's all fingerprint entry. Uh, let's get through. We're actually so busy that we only had this side a few months back. We've doubled it because this is just all sold out. So yeah, so there's it. two sides to this room. There's vaults all yeah. along the two sides. So you only had the first, the left-hand side was full. That's right, yeah. It's because crime's gone so high now, um, banks have stopped offering safe deposit boxes. Uh, so people were begging us to hold their jewellery. So it was a no-brainer to get this, and we've done really well. And then we look to expand into the next corridor because it's just that busy and crime's that high at the moment, sadly. So it seems that as the price of gold continues to hover at record highs, it's not just traders that are paying attention. I'm the BBC's Liana Byrne for Marketplace. And in New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM American Public Media. A Morning Edition host, Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.